two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> this is stupid. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 54 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I'm your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Pal, you are back from the dead. We all need to know, how is you? I'm just, you know, glad to be back in 2021, because uh, from, apparently, I uh, I may have got lost in a different uh, parallel universe. <laughs> oh, Chris, you must be referring to the John Titer time travel episode that I did by myself, and let's just say you were very lucky to have been stuck there, Chris, because it appears, after looking at the downloads, that the episode was indeed a dud. My man, it is very difficult to carry these episodes by myself. It was terrible. (laughs) There's no way it's fun to basically just talk to yourself. Now, Chris, this evening, we may be discussing, in my opinion at least, possibly the coolest case in BTC history. Before you get too excited, pal, (laughs) and before I reveal everything... I must say that there are some stunning, and I mean stunning, similarities between the host of the Between the Cracks podcast and tonight's subjects at hand. Now, Chris... Would be that. (laughs) With all that said, pal, just as you and I would do anything to escape tonight's recording, pal, unfortunately, Chris, we lack the Houdini-like skills of the gentleman that we're discussing tonight. Because tonight, Chris, we are talking about the most infamous prison escape in the history of the United States. We are discussing the 1962 escape from Alcatraz case. Notice how I didn't say attempt. Because, pal, I truly believe that these guys made it. I think they successfully escaped from Alcatraz. Now... We don't like to give up. I'm jumping ahead. I'm aware. I know that. Excuse me for being so uh, excited about tonight's case. I just love this kind of stuff. And I, I do apologize for giving my thoughts and opinions on what I think happened already. But we're going to circle back around to that, Chris. But for now, let's give a brief history of The Rock. How about that little nugget to get the ball rolling, bud? <laughs> That's right. Alcatraz was known simply as The Rock. Chris, why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown about old Alcatraz? What do you got for us, pal? So Alcatraz, as most everybody probably knows, was a federal penitentiary. But, of course, it's famous for being on an island, uh, which sitting on a very large rock, of course, uh, which gave it the name The Rock, dates back to the 1850s when the site was a fort. Uh, and, and then the main prison ended up being built uh, between 1910 and 1912, and it was actually used as a U.S. Army military prison. Eventually, the United States Department of Justice had acquired the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks, the Pacific Branch, on Alcatraz on October 12th of 1933. And at that point, the island became a prison for the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the August of 1934. I mean, and just looking at pictures of this place, it, <laughs> it does pretty much look impenetrable and it looks very intimidating. Am I right, Chris? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess 
depending on how you look at it, it's a pretty sick view, I'd imagine, for uh, an inmate if you're uh, able to catch a good view. Well, I guess, you, yes, there is that aspect which you're, <laughs> which you're stuck there and there's no getting, at, <laughs> no getting off the goddamn thing. I, I'm assuming looking at the Golden Gate Bridge and the skyline of San Francisco, the beautiful uh, San Francisco Bay there, there, there does seem to be some attractiveness to it. And it gets even better because uh, some of the prison corridors were named after uh, some major U.S. streets, uh, such as Broadway and Michigan Avenue. So, uh, you know, that'll make you feel right at home when you're in a maximum security prison. So, so Bob, basically what you're saying here is we have hometown USA on our hands. (laughs) So, So now, Chris, the question becomes, who would ever want to leave this beautiful place? Am I right? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, when you can take a stroll down Broadway, come on. <laughs> now, talking about leaving this place, uh, let's get into the history of that before we get into the uh, gentleman that we're going to be speaking about tonight. Of the 1,576 prisoners that passed through the doors or gates of Alcatraz, there were 14 escape attempts and a total of 36 inmates involved. And my man, it did not go well for a majority of them. Some of them drowned. Some of them just disappeared. Others were shot. One guy did make it across the San Francisco Bay there, but uh, he was captured right afterwards and nearly died of hypothermia. So he did have uh, a few minutes of freedom give to me uh, liberty look back on. Give me death. So what's funny is that we hear all these things about Alcatraz, right? How the water is so cold, you can't swim in it. The guards were expert sharpshooters. And my favorite one, Chris, that the San Francisco Bay was infested with great white sharks. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, but whenever I've heard stories about Alcatraz, those are the three things I've always heard. I watched a documentary called Breakout from Alcatraz, and this was on the History Channel, Chris. The historian involved, his name is Alan Blasdale, and he says that all three of those things were absolutely 100% false. He goes that the water, and he makes a very good point, although it is cold, it is warm enough to swim in and you know he's right because they actually hold an escape from alcatraz triathlon every year bud where you actually have to swim from alcatraz to the coast so uh riddle me that if these athletes are able to do it you know and they're able to survive in this cold temperature other people must be able to i'd assume although i i I don't know the time of year matters or not but um even the thought of there being fucking sharks in there would be enough to me be like, ah, I guess I'll just spend life in prison. Well, well, seriously, they use that as a tactic to keep these guys scared. I wouldn't want to jump into a shark-infested bay. Fuck that, especially Great Whites. Yeah, uh, and, and you're, it's not to mention that the, the time that you'd be escaping would be at night, which, by the way, uh, is the most active feeding time for sharks, so... Uh, all, I no. would, all I would need is something to bump up against my leg at night in the water, and <laughs> I, I would just sink to the bottom. Just turn to dust. <laughs> Seriously, they got you scared with the sharks. They got you scared that you're going to be wearing your balls as a necktie with the uh, temperature in the water. <laughs> and then, on top of that, they proclaim that all the guards there were ex-military sharpshooters. None of this was true, but it was all designed to intimidate the inmates, and it worked fairly well. So now, with that brief little history and some of the environmental factors that surrounded the prison, let's hop into what we're talking about tonight. Let's hop into the meat of tonight's case, the June 1962 Alcatraz Escape Pal. And more specifically, this thing actually took place on your birthday, June 11th, 1962. Can you believe it? I was 
born in January. Okay, let's just keep it going, Chris. Eighty-six. Uh, uh-huh, beautiful. So, uh, on June 11th, 1962, as I said, that is when three gentlemen by the name of Frank Morris, brothers John and Clarence Anglin, escaped from the Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. As you said before, my man, it was a maximum security facility located on a goddamn island. So how are you getting off this island? Uh, we don't know. Oh, well, actually, we do know, and we're going to tell you. <laughs> well, but we do. <laughs> but, you know, the sad thing is, Chris, I, I look back on this, and there were actually four men involved, and... Uh, the fourth man, who I didn't mention, goes by the name of Alan West. And unfortunately, on the night of their escape, and we're going to get into how they escaped, Alan West could not fit through the hole Access to denied. get to the place where he had to go to escape. So imagine that you did all this preparation and <laughs> come the night to follow through on the plans, you are unable to get through the hole. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. So, uh, we'll keep that on the back burner for right now. So, uh, we're going to get into this. Uh, that is just one <laughs> one dreadful little uh, detail about this. Uh, enough to drive someone fucking mad. My God. So, let's get into it. Um, as I said, the escapees were Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin. Now, before we talk about how they escaped, Chris, let's give a little bit of a rundown on what the hell they were there for. And... This is pretty cool, actually. Uh, I just found this out that prisoners at Alcatraz weren't just from the state of California. They were actually shipped from all around the United States, and they held some of the most dangerous men. Al Capone was there. There was uh, George Machine Gun Kelly. That's a cool nickname. And uh, Robert Stroud, who was known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. And he was called Birdman because he kept a number of birds as pets. So... You know, this place has a notorious past with notorious fucking inmates. Now, let's start with Frank Morris. Frank Lee Morris, to be exact. He was born in Washington, D.C., and right from the get-go, he had a troubled life. And we'll see that uh, as we tell his story a little bit, because at age 11, Chris, his mother and father abandoned him, and he had to spend most of his teenage years in and out of different foster homes. As I said, he was in and out of different facilities because he was actually convicted of his first crime at age 13. And as he grew older, the crimes got more and more severe. They ranged from drug possession to grand larceny, stealing cars, armed robbery. Now, you may say that those sound like your average crimes, right? And yes, they do. Would they warrant a trip across the country to Alcatraz? Uh, no. But what did get him a one-way ticket to Alcatraz, Chris, was an escape from a Louisiana state penitentiary while serving 10 years. And now we're going to see with the rest of these guys, too, that I mentioned, John and Clarence Anglin, the brothers, and Alan West, they all had prison escaped attempts. If you're attempting to escape from prison... I'm sure they want to make an example out of you. And what are they going to do? They're going to send you to a prison that they deem and the federal government deems to be inescapable. Now, that's Frank Morris. Let's happen to the brothers Anglin here. Now, these two guys, they were born down in Georgia. Donaldsville, Georgia, to be exact. Your hometown, Chris. And uh, <laughs> they began robbing banks when they were in their early 20s, around the 1950s. Um, and what's funny about them is that they weren't necessarily violent. They would 
basically try to break into stores and whatnot when they were closed. But they did attempt to rob one bank in 1958, and that was the Bank of Columbia in Columbia, Alabama. And they were caught and both received 15 to 20 year sentences. Now, the interesting thing here, Chris, is that they were using toy guns, so they didn't even have an actual weapon on them. So, yes, they did attempt to rob the place, but no, they did not have a weapon on them. So you would think that that would play into maybe a lighter sentence, but not in this case, man. They were transferred through a bunch of different uh, penitentiaries. And uh, the last one being the Atlanta Penitentiary, they attempted to escape the facility a number of times. And guess what their prize was for those failed attempts, Chris? The Rock. Oh, so right you are, Chris. They were shipped off to Alcatraz. Now, for the last escapee here, or should I say the gentleman who was supposed to be an escapee, Alan West. Remember the guy I talked about that got stuck in the wall who couldn't? (laughs) I don't know if he got stuck, but he couldn't make it through the hole. Maybe he was carrying a little holiday weight, but he couldn't get through the fucking hole. So uh, let's just give a brief rundown on him. Allen was born in New York City. He was arrested for car theft in 1955 and then was sent to a facility down in Florida. And here's the trifecta, Chris. He, too, had an unsuccessful escape attempt on his hands. My man, they shipped his ass right off to Alcatraz, too, bud. These guys all started filing into Alcatraz between 1960 and 1961, a mere two years before their escape. So apparently the, these four inmates were assigned adjacent cells in 61. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but why would you put four people who are accused of escaping multiple times in adjacent cells so that they can hatch another plan to escape? <laughs> that is a very astute observation, Chris. And we're going to come to find out when we talk about some of the things that these prisoners were allowed to do and allowed to get away with by the guards. That seems to be the least of the most puzzling things that these guys were allowed to do. So let's get into some of this. And let's talk about how they rapidly put their plan together. So right off the bat, we actually have some contradictory information because the guy that got stuck... Alan West, he claims that he was the mastermind behind the whole plan, which with him getting stuck and not being able to escape, especially if he was the mastermind of this plan, makes that all the more (laughs) tragic. (laughs) Seriously. But uh, then in some other stories, we hear that Frank Morris, remember the guy that we said was from D.C. and was abandoned by his parents at age 11, that he was indeed the brains of the operation. He actually had a genius level IQ. And now when we come to talk about some of the things that he put together for this escape, I'm prone to believe that that is true. Now, Chris, I'm going to read you something. And get this, I'm going back to the roots of 1962, pal. I'm not getting this shit from Wikipedia. I'm not getting it from a documentary. I'm getting this from Encyclopedia Britannica, pal. You remember encyclopedias? Oh, yeah, of course I do. Now, this is bringing some authenticity to this case, Chris. So, on June 12th... Now, remember we said that the escape took place on June 11th of 1962 at night. So, a guard making a routine cell block headcount on the early morning of June 12th, 1962, came upon three inmates apparently sleeping in their cells. Further investigation, <laughs> I, love, I love the term investigation, uh, <laughs> revealed that the inmates were in fact dummy heads made from painted paper mache with care glued on, and that the actual occupants of the cell, the three guys we talked about before, Frank Morris 
and Clarence and John Anglin, the brothers, were nowhere to be found. The guard raised the alarm, and the warden in charge promptly notified the state and federal authorities, as well as the U.S. military, and an intense manhunt began. So, not only do you have the feds after you, bro, you got the military after you. Now it's time to get scared. <laughs> I wonder what their uh, like their plan of action is on that. Like, where do they look first? Obviously, probably around the outskirts of the island, just to make sure they aren't like hiding somewhere. But then, like, that's a lot of water to cover. And, and they had a few hours head start. So, I mean, if you do make it across that bay, you could be gone, you know, anywhere. You know, if you could catch a flight or go down uh, the Pacific Coast Highway or go north, you could easily blend back into society, especially at that uh, date and time when there was no, we didn't have the technology that we do now, you know? Now you'll just be tracked and fucking killed within two minutes. You'd never make it out the fucking door without being seen by a camera now. <laughs> Seriously. So now let, let's like get... a drone picks you up. I mean, and, it, and when I think about that, there are some benefits to it. And it, there definitely are some drawbacks too, right? I mean, you know, yeah, like... how can you escape for prison? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm siding with these prisoners and they escape too much. You know, maybe I'm, I'm coming across <laughs> in the wrong way. But uh, let's get back into uh, this for a little bit. So inside the cells... The guards discovered that the grill, there were like little ventilation um, systems in there. Each cell had its own vent. So they found out that behind, and get this, Chris, these were eight inch thick concrete walls. So these guys spent day after day just chiseling away at this wall, at the cement, little by little. And they would do that with spoons that they took from the mess hall. So they must have to sharpen them or somehow, you know, make it into a kind of chisel. Once they removed that uh, grill there and they were chiseling away at, they obviously had to make, you know, the grill larger to throw off the guards. And that's exactly what they did once again with this fucking paper mache. So these guys must be wizards in in, uh, arts and crafts. They would uh, use magazines from the library and glue or wherever the hell they had. And they painted it to match the color of the wall. And we're going to find out how they got that pink color in just a little bit. But they made it, and you know, I've looked at the pictures of this, and it was pretty convincing. It looked pretty much like the original vent, believe it or not. It would be funny if, like, in their art class, they're, like, making these paper mache heads... And, and, like, the person on guard is just like, oh, that's nice. What's that for? <laughs> well, that's the thing, dude. It, it all ties together. So they were, you know, using these holes. Once they made the hole large enough to escape through, they would leave at night after the guard did their head count. They would scurry through this hole, climb up the piping to the next level, which was left abandoned. Now, you may ask, how were they able to fool the guards and uh, be away from their jail cell when they're still doing checks. Well, as Chris said, they used those dummy heads and they constructed those heads out of paper mache too. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I'm looking at them. They look fairly realistic. They have nice skin tone uh, paint. They actually used real hair that they glued on there that they got from clippings from the barbershop within the prison they attached eyebrows eyelashes so you can imagine that when a blanket is put over this and you have just the top of the head sticking out and all lights are out guards are just coming through with a flashlight it's easy to see how they could be fooled because you know in the guards minds you know maybe they got cocky or whatnot but you know you would think that this place is impossible to escape from if you really think about it though it's, it would be so easy to just fuck up this whole thing and give up something to, like, somebody becomes super suspicious of you. The elaborate 
scheme that they they did here just even to basically fit through this widening hole. You know, they had to do that shit at night and how quiet they had to be, especially with these guards doing checks every 15 minutes, every half hour, whatever the fuck it was. So they had to constantly hop back in their bed, then get back up. I mean, the sheer determination is impressive. That shows you how bad the inside of Alcatraz was. So that's not it, Chris. And get this. This is the crazy part. The guy who got stuck, Alan West, he actually had a job within the prison where he was in charge of sanding and painting the upper level that I said was abandoned. And what he did, a very smart move, is he started kicking paint chips and dust and whatnot off of that top level down into the lower level and into the cells below. And then the other inmates started you know, complaining about it. He got permission from the guards to put up blankets, basically covering anything he was doing up there for over two months under the guise of <laughs> preventing the paint chips and the dust from going to the level below. And they fucking went for it. And the blankets obstructed the guard's view of him for over two months. Chris, let me ask you this question. With a secure abandoned location with covers blocking you from any visual inspection from guards do you think this section that Wes had secured could be used for these gentlemen to prep any of the instruments that they may need for their escape um yes <laughs> yeah you're right basically created a fucking in-prison workshop believe it or not <laughs> it is really quite incredible what they uh what they were able to do without anybody noticing I mean how fucking cool is this? <laughs> I, I, I don't care. Some people may get pissed, but this is fucking crazy. This is cool that these guys did this all on their fucking own. It's incredible. Like you said, any little thing could have gone wrong and destroyed this whole plan, right? But, you know, it was so well thought out that, you know, they were never detected. And the thing that they had on their side, too, is that a number of the prisoners knew about this, and they were actually helping them out. And how they helped them out in many ways, obviously by keeping their fucking mouths shut. On top of that, what they were doing was collecting raincoats, like old tattered raincoats that were prison issued. So any ones that they could find that were damaged or whatnot were actually smuggled into the prison and handed to these guys to make makeshift rafts and life preservers. And what's the, the cool thing here, Chris, is that uh, one of the prisoners got a popular mechanics magazine from the prison library that happened to have an article in it on how <laughs> get this to make your own life raft and life preserver what a coincidence yeah how crazy is that so uh, they were actually provided with the materials that they needed and the instruction manual they needed right from the prison library so they took all these old raincoats and brought them up to that blanketed off section at night. So every night they went up there and they constructed this raft by sewing bits and pieces of it together. They stored all that stuff up there along with the oars that they made from, you know, these these makeshift pieces of wood that they had. So now, Chris, like all these things that we've talked about, they have a perfect out on their hands, pretty much. They have that hole in the wall that was hidden behind the vent. They have those paper mache masks that look insanely realistic for the materials that they had they now have life preservers and a raft they have all the things that they need and that's all leading up to one thing showtime and that happens on june 11th 
1962. Am I? Oh, we wanted to class this place up to try to get some sponsors, right, Chris? So uh, instead of the am I right, Chris, let me try something new. Am I correct in saying so? Christopher. Right you be, William. <laughs> oh, thank you. So let's talk about it, shall we? So here it is, the big night. And the guys are gearing up to do what they've prepped for for over nine months, almost a year, right? So once the guard made one of their nightly checks, the guys all took off together. They let each other know it's time. So they all removed events and went through that eight-inch thick cement wall into the steam room that was behind them. And they had to scurry up to the next floor where they held the life raft and everything else. So the guard passes, the guys put the paper mache heads down to cover it with the blanket. The guards are none the wiser. They squeeze through this hole in the wall and they are off. All four of them. Right, Chris? Pardon? No, 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 no. I'm just pulling your leg, pal, because as we said, our man Alan West, the guy who had the fucking paint job, the guy who secured the blankets and everything for this workshop, dude, he is the one that could not get through this hole that he dug. And there are two different reasons that come out all the time. One said that he was using cement to secure the paper mache vent and that that had hardened and he just couldn't get through it after that. But now the more plausible explanation is that he wasn't digging all the way through. He was going to save the last bit. It was basically like a fist sized hole that he had to get through and he was going to save that for the last minute. But apparently there was a reinforced piece of steel running through it and he could not fit. So he had no choice but to stay in his cell. And Morris and the Anglin brothers had no other alternative, my man. They had to go. So these guys, man, they, they head into that back utility corridor. They collect their raft, their oars, and everything else that they have that they need, right? So they then use plumbing piping as steps to climb up to the cell block roof. And the three of them lifted themselves up through a large ventilation shaft. And God, I couldn't even imagine doing that now. My God, I, I, I would just give up, dude. There's no way I'm jumping up anything at this point in my life. Uh, so these guys reached the fucking roof. And then uh, they next used a large exterior pipe to slip 50 feet down to the ground, dude. So they just slid down this fucking thing. At that point, they're still not free, Chris. They had to cut through barbed wire around the fencing. But they were lucky enough that they were in a section that was not really guarded. It was kind of cut off visually from the guards. So... They weren't even detected, and it was at that point, once they get past that fence, they're on the shore of Alcatraz, and the next step is obviously inflate that raft, right? And now you're going to want to ask, how could they inflate a raft that was meant to carry four men? I mean, you don't have the fucking time to sit there and blow the goddamn thing up. Now, what they did, Chris, and this just shows their uh, ingenuity, they used a concertina, which is like a small accordion. They took all the shit out of the inside of it and used that as a fucking pump to blow this thing up quickly. That's just brilliant. So now the raft is blown up. Their life jackets are secured. They take off into the cold San Francisco Bay waters at night and are never seen nor heard from again. And as you could imagine, the investigation ensues. And as I said, you had the feds involved, the military, everybody's involved. So the one thing that they claim or they estimate is that they believe that the guys got on the raft and headed 
towards Angel Island, which was two miles north of Alcatraz. That's what they think. But as we said before, Chris, no raft nor any remains of the gentleman were ever found. So let's hop into this investigation a little bit and see what the feds found out, if anything. So they didn't discover this escape until the morning of June 12th. So they had a pretty good head start on these guys. Uh, And that was due mostly in part to that absolutely astonishing beautiful work of art that that their dummy heads were and yeah man you gotta think right with, with the skin tone uh paint that they used and with actual human hair with it being nighttime and the guards just using a flashlight with no successful escape attempts in alcatraz's history the guards are going to be none the wiser so you have all these hours until daylight or roll call to escape so you have a few hours head start which is huge obviously with any night guards taking gander into cells noticing that there's a head there which who knows how much further they would investigate it anyway probably not you're looking at a bunch of guys go right past them boom they're set now of course as you mentioned earlier that you know this is a federal penitentiary so like this is not only being investigated by guards or whatnot that are on the facility but it's also a military matter in a joint effort you have military and law enforcement now doing air, sea, and land searches because, of course, the prison is on an island, so that takes into account waterways, especially. And they do this for the next 10 days. And then on June 14th, one of the Coast Guards actually picked up a paddle that was floating approximately 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. And on that same day, and in that pretty much that location... People on another boat found a wallet wrapped in plastic that included the names, addresses, and photos of the Anglin's friends and relatives. Yikes. So, what have we here? It seems as if they found the belongings of some of the escapees. Well, not only that, right? I mean, (laughs) for what these guys actually had and what they find, you know, the, the pictures and the addresses of the family, that's their worldly possessions right especially being a prisoner i mean they thought so much of those things as to take it with them so that's either telling you one or two things that they they did pass away they did drown somehow or uh get eaten by a shark we don't know that that was left behind or they swam for it and left it behind or chris and there is one more or and it's a big or they were picked up by another boat and taken to the mainland now we're going to get into that, but I, I, I thought this part was pretty funny. So as we said, they never found any of the bodies, which is interesting enough, because generally speaking, the bodies always make their way to shore, especially in a bay here. It's, and I shouldn't say funny, but there was a Norwegian ship that was 15 nautical miles away, and they had spotted a floating body. And as I said, 15 nautical miles away, right? So, which is equivalent to about 17 miles. They said that it matched the description of one of the men. But you got to ask yourself, <laughs> what matched? The, the head of fucking arms? Legs? An ass? So, I mean, when you're looking that far away at a body floating, you can't really say who or what it looks like, right? Not if you're just watching the thing floating, if they picked it up. No, they didn't pick it up. They just kept fucking going, but they reported it. But apparently... There was a gentleman in the area who five days earlier committed suicide by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. So authorities believe that that could have been him as well. It's so stupid. That boat 
that cited the body says that they cited it on July 17th, but they didn't report it until October. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> who fucking knows? I mean, that just sounds like a bunch of bullshit, but uh, let's uh, move on with this, Chris, because as I said, these guys had help from the inside and not only from the prisoners not being rats and keeping their mouths shut and smuggling in the raincoats and whatnot, but there was also rumor that another famous inmate there who was called the, the godfather of Harlem, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson. What a fucking name. That They say that uh, old Bumpy here arranged for a boat to meet the men and pick them up halfway between Alcatraz and this Angel Island. Now, are you ready for this? I'm ready. The authorities at Alcatraz made note and reported that there was a boat, a motorboat, in the boat-restricted area around Alcatraz at 1 a.m. that morning. And it was at that point when they were spotted, they turned their lights back on and took off, Chris. Now, do you know who would have been passing by there at 1 a.m.? My man, if you said Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, you'd be correct. (laughs) So, as the story goes, and one of the theories is that Bumpy Johnson arranged for these guys to be picked up by a boat. There was a boat in the area, and they apparently got their raft to this boat, because the raft was never found either, dude. So, many speculate that they boarded the boat and then took the raft with them, and took off, and were dropped off on the mainland, then took either a flight or drove down to Mexico, because get this little uh, tidbit, bud, for nine months, once they started planning their escape... All of them began practicing and learning Spanish. Oh, really? See. Si. <laughs> so, Chris, you know, when, you, when you're looking at this and you hear all these things, shark-infested water, sharpshooters, cold waters that you'll instantly get hypothermia in, nobody's ever successfully escaped from this prison. Initially, upon looking at this information, you know, I would say there's no way that these guys made it. But once I started digging deeper into this thing, that's why I said from the start of the show, I truly believe that these guys made it because how do the bodies just never show up? And then you learn some of the information surrounding Alcatraz that we've learned our whole lives is bullshit. There are no great whites in the bay and you can survive swimming in this water. You know, I mean, albeit it would be fucking difficult, but you can survive. And now with the information of this boat being reported by the authorities in that area, plus never finding the bodies. This is all starting to make sense, but it doesn't end there. Am I right, Chris? Right you are, and there is several reported sightings that claim that some of these escapees were were found oh. in uh, various locations, of course. Well, we should clarify, they weren't found by the authorities, were they, Chris? Right you be. Oh my God, I'm betting a thousand tonight. <laughs> in fact, a day after the escape, apparently a man claiming to be John Anglin made a call to a lawyer by the name Eugenia McGowan in San Francisco that wanted to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal's office. Why the fuck would you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, excuse me, I want to turn myself in. I just um, made I just made the escape of a lifetime. I would like to uh, hereby uh, turn myself back over to the authorities. 
Right, so basically the FBI ends up dismissing this as a prank call. And then in January of 65, now this being a couple years later, they investigated apparent rumor that Clarence Anglin was living in Brazil. And uh, it was considered to be a significant enough lead that they actually sent agents to South America to go find him. Well, that would make you believe that the claim is credible, right? So, I mean, we, we should have mentioned before that the the prison authorities themselves actually claim, and they, they close this case saying that the men drowned. They, they passed away. They, they perished. But the feds have kept this case open. So, as you're saying here, Chris, they were still investigating this case and following up on different leads. So much so that they were going to different countries. Yeah, it's funny how they say that, right? Oh, you know, don't. There's nothing to worry about. They, they're dead. They drowned. And then on, on the other hand, all right, let's find these guys. Well, well that's the thing. They, I mean, they're probably just maybe embarrassed and they're trying to cover their own asses. Like there's no way they could have escaped. And just arrogance, right? Now that that trip to Brazil didn't yield any. Uh, useful information and they didn't find anybody but as we said more tips just keep coming even to this day tips are coming in chris so let's hop back into some of the other tips that came through the uh, pipeline here and uh one was in 67 by a guy who claimed to have been a friend of morris and known him for over 30 years he said that he bumped into him in maryland and get this chris this is this is going to blow the case wide open he describes him and he gave, he gave the feds this great tip of having a small beard and a mustache. <laughs> that's our guy. Uh, that's it. We got him. We got him, Johnny. We got him. <laughs> so, I mean, that one sounds like a bunch of bullshit. He was a friend of mine. He has a small beard and a mustache. I don't know. This just sounds like somebody fucking around. And the funny thing is, he's refused to give any further details. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy, yes, he did. He refused to give any further. Thanks for the fucking tip, asshole. So, <laughs> but it, it gets a, a little bit more uh, credible as we go on because family members of the uh, England brothers said that they received postcards every year, that the mom always got a Christmas card and would receive flowers every year on Mother's Day until her death in 1973. And get this, bud. This is a weird one. At her funeral, the feds show up, as you would think, right? Just in case these guys are alive, you would assume that the brothers Anglin are going to be at the funeral of their mother. So with the feds there, Chris, watching this, and I quote here, two very tall, unusual women in heavy makeup were reported to have attended the funeral. Now, what that's saying is that these guys were dressed up as women to conceal themselves in order to attend their mother's funeral. And it seems that they were able to get out of there before the feds could question them and were never seen nor heard from again. I don't know how credible that is. I mean, though the feds say that they were there, I understand wanting to be at your mother's funeral, but you got to ask yourself, is it worth the risk to have to go back to prison? First off, any slight suspicion would raise a flag for the FBI... It wouldn't be worth it, like you said. If there was two very tall, unusual women with heavy makeup on, would that not be enough for them to try to intervene? Or was it one of those things where it's like, without any clear, concise evidence that it was actually them, that they wouldn't want to step foot and potentially cross a line that shouldn't be crossed? I mean, I would think at this point in time, right, in 73, they escaped in 62, if they were on a run for 11 years and you're still looking at them, I, I would take my chance at insulting the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, uh, now we have all these claims here, but 
to me, and what I'm about to tell you all, this may be the case breaker, Chris. And that's when Ken and David Widner handed over a picture to investigators. It seems that there was a picture taken on a farm in Brazil in 1975 of two men, people believed to be John and Clarence Anglin. And apparently they got this picture from an old family friend named Fred Breezy that was apparently friends of uh, the Anglin brothers and assisted in their escape as well uh, because this guy was a pilot and there is rumor and speculation that he did help them fly down to uh, South America. And they handed over to a forensic expert who analyzed it. And the expert, guess this, Chris, says that he is fairly certain that this is the Brothers Anglin. That it is indeed the escapees from Alcatraz. Interesting. And we do know that the FBI put some real serious thought into going to Brazil to find these, these men. So... If this picture was provided after that, you know, it starts to make you wonder, like, they may have gone to Brazil to find them and they just couldn't find them, but that doesn't mean they weren't there. And think about how different they probably looked, too, at the time. And, you know, you didn't have all this technology that you do now, facial recognition technology and all this other stuff that is available to the police and the feds in 2021. You didn't have this back then. I just think it's funny that they're putting so much emphasis on these cases when they're, you know, I assume that they have to act as if these men could be potentially harmful to the public, but none of their crimes were actually high profile. I think what we're looking at here, Chris, is that they're embarrassed by it and they don't want egg on their (laughs) face here. I I think it's a little late. Yeah, it's a little late, but they're still trying. But Chris, it doesn't end there. I mean, we're joking about the, the, the length of time here, but it's still going on because news came through in January of 2018 that the San Francisco Police Department received a letter in 2013 from a man claiming to be John Anglin. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit of it here. It says, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. So that's how the letter opens up. The writer then goes on to say that his brother Clarence died in 2008 and Morris died in 2005. So the writer goes on to... uh, Attempt to make a deal with the police. He goes, and I quote here, If you announce on TV that I will be promised to just go back to jail for no more than one year and get medical attention, I will write you back and let you know exactly where I am. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. So the guy, the writer goes on to say that he lived in Seattle for most of his life and then spent roughly a decade in North Dakota. So you're asking, what are the feds going to do here? With so much invested in this case, they're going to send it off to a forensic handwriting analysis lab. And that's exactly what they did. And uh, the handwriting samples of all three escapees, and I quote here, John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morse were compared to the anonymous letter. And the results were deemed inconclusive. Now, it's not saying it's not them. It's not saying it's them. It's inconclusive. And so, I mean, you're dealing with handwriting of a young guy who's in his 20s compared to a sick 83-year-old man with cancer. So, obviously, it can change a bit. So, I mean, I'm no handwriting expert, so I don't know what kind of details they're looking for here. 
or what they can decipher from this letter. But obviously, you would imagine after all these years later that uh, the handwriting would change, especially with somebody that is debilitated with a sickness. And I mean, the letter itself sounds pretty reasonable as to what somebody like that would say, right? Like, almost like they're getting to the end of their life and they kind of want people to know that they actually did, like, accomplish this feat. You know, at that point, they could just do a DNA analysis, right? If they got the guy there, like, you know, like a blood sample or something. Well, you would assume... If they wanted to prove it was him. You know, well, now with this new technology, like this 23andMe and the... the uh Ancestry.com, all these things, like they'll get somebody's DNA and then put it into this database and they they can match it up to some people in family trees. Right. So they could definitely have proved, obviously, it would be tough to tell by the guy's face and features, but they could definitely prove it was him if he gave himself up and they were like, oh, well, let's, let's prove this is you. And then they did that sample, you know, so that would be, I would, if I was them, I'd be like, sure. Yeah, and that's the thing, Chris. They never followed up on it. One of uh, the relatives said, and I quote here, for him to say that he had cancer and was dying, I feel like they should have at least reached out to the family and let them know it existed. But like we said, they didn't release the information till five years later, so nothing ever came of it. I mean, at this point, they probably would just want him to pass away and be done with it rather than having to admit that like we said that all three of them actually escaped right if this guy ended up being john england then they would have to assume that the other two made it as well and then like we said they'd have egg on their face that alcatraz was indeed an escapable prison so now with all that said chris and all those claims and developments that's where a case leaves off i mean these guys to this day have still never been found and if this letter is true Two of them are dead, and this letter having been dated in 2013 from an 83-year-old man with cancer, one can assume that he probably passed away as well. So whether you know that be true or not, I'm guessing at this day and age in 2021 that all three of these men are deceased at this point in time. Interestingly enough, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, Chris, because we come to find out that Alcatraz itself shut its doors for good on March 21st, 1963, less than a year after the escape. Now, the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Prisons claimed that it had nothing to do with the escape. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, the timing is a little suspicious, but I can understand how expensive it would be to operate this prison in general, right? Because you have to ship in all the supplies, you can't just drive into things, so you have to transport employees. That shit all gets very expensive. But you got to wonder, did this escape act as a catalyst in uh, the closing of Alcatraz? I'm sure there's some plan there. And I'm, I'm sure they were perhaps thinking about maybe getting rid of this prison or if they should. And then once this happened, I think it was like, all right. It says here that, that this facility in general costs over three times more than it would be to run like the average American prison. When there was, apparently there was major repairs and with the structure itself deteriorating because of, you know, being right on the ocean um, and obviously, you know, salt water, it it can wreak havoc on structures. I think it got to the point where like, all right, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And given this latest kind of foul up, I can just close it. Alcatraz is still open to this day, and it is now a museum, and you can actually go there and check out all the artifacts 
<laughs> and evidence pertaining to this case, Chris. And, I, you know, it just tells me one thing that even the prison itself is impressed by this escape. Now, Chris, before we go, I just want to ask you, pal, did these boys make it? What says you? 110% I think they made it. Holy shit! Wow, I did not see that coming. You threw me a curveball, pal. I don't think there's any doubt here. The fact that the FBI itself put a bunch of people on this case for many years just goes to tell you that even in their minds, they're pretty sure that they escaped. Yeah, they believe it. Absolutely. After telling people that they didn't. Well, that's the thing. They try to save face, but obviously if they're going to invest this much time and money to uh, continue looking and, and, and researching this case to this day, they obviously believe these guys made it. You know, And without a body, you can't 100% say that they did not make it. Yeah, I, I think they absolutely did. When we first started talking about this case, I didn't really know much about it. I was like, there's no way they could have made this trip. But then you come to find out that the great white myth is uh, just that, a myth that it's not shark-infested water, that you can survive in these temperatures, and that these guards weren't as well-trained as we were led to believe. All those factors, plus the boat having been in that restricted area at one in the morning when the men were passing through, in addition to that, the sightings through the years, specifically that picture taken in Brazil in 1975, that closed the deal for me. I believe 100 and 11%, Chris, that these guys made it. Hmm. I beat you by 1%, pal. Well, I think we cracked the case. I think we did, pal, and that makes us 54 for 54. <laughs> Who is better than us? <laughs> I think a lot of people. All right, so <laughs> that's it, Chris. That is the story of the 1962 incredible escape from Alcatraz. What a cool story. So let's give the rundown and escape episode number 54, shall we? If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get us at Instagram at Between the Cracks Podcast. You can get us all over the place. If you like what you hear and would like to donate a few bones to the boys at uh, the Between the Cracks Podcast, please feel free to join our Patreon page, and the link to that will be in our show notes. And I actually have a Patreon only episode that uh, I'll be doing later this week. So that'll be out uh, sometime next week, probably. So you get access to bonus episodes, uh, stickers, mugs, all that shit. You can request a show, lots of good stuff. And if you would like to purchase any merch, you can find us at teespring.com and just search BTC. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. And now there is rumor that Chris may be uh, coming around the area later this week. So we might actually have our first in-person studio recording. We've said that before. Quite a few times and it has never worked out. (laughs) Uh, But with all that said, Chris, why don't you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest. Oh. Let's not even do it. <laughs> That's too, too much work. I don't feel like doing it. All right, bro. Thanks. All man. right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <man>. <laughs>